Stem cell science is changing medicine and our understanding of human development. Learn more with the Stem Cell Channel. Visit uctv.tv slash stem cell. All right, so section two for this afternoon, um, it's about brain organoids, robotics, and artificial intelligence. And um, I was actually um, thinking about how to contextualize this section. To be honest, I never seen a topic like that uh, in a stem cell meeting before. So I think we are kind of innovators in here. Um, and I will, I'm going to try to, to explain why this is important, why we decided to focus on that, and, uh, and then introduce uh, to the panelists. So um, just to contextualize, I want you all to think about uh, the world that we're living in and to think about major problems that we need to solve. And if you are like me, most likely um, you're going to have uh, one of those topics here. So, I mean, um, I think we are now facing the pandemic as well. So emergent viruses is one of uh, the um, major problems that we have. Um, and the challenge is uh, how can we actually fix all of that? Um, so one of the uh, uh, solutions that we think is probably the best solution or the only solution that we have to solve all the problems that you can think of is uh, the human brain. Um, so I think we all agree that it has to come from the human brain to solve all these issues. And, um, and people have thought about that, but it doesn't work. And the reason why it's not work is because um, we all have like cultural backgrounds. We all defend flags, nations, countries. We have our private and public interests and our previous experience shapes our brain, but also create these biases that makes it impossible to coordinate to solve uh, major problems. Um, so although we have the machinery in place, uh, the biases that we create by growing up um, makes it hard uh, to move forward. So, um, and this is because human learning has different steps. I mean, we, uh, we transition between a prenatal, innate learning uh, to uh, postnatal learning or, or a bias learning. Uh, in the prenatal settings, we have unsupervised, this is experience independent. We are not actually receiving inputs, uh, but it's activity dependent network. So we use the network that has been evolved throughout uh, years of evolution to actually create this innate learning. So newborn babies actually can learn things really fast. Um, and can contextualize things as well. So as we pass this innate learning, we start entering this postnatal learning that, as I mentioned, is highly biased because it's basically uh, focused on the sensory experience. So it's dependent, it's shaped by the environment. And uh, by the way, most of what we know about learning actually comes from this sensory experience uh, dependency. Uh, we know, don't know much about what happens in the early stages. So not a big surprise. I mean, we have been inspired by the biology to create models or algorithms for artificial intelligence. So contrary to the complexity of all the cell populations and the dynamic connections that we have in the real brain, uh, the current artificial intelligence uses a very simplified uh, homogeneous and static neurons to build networks. So it's likely that the incorporation of the additional aspects of the organic circuitry could dramatically improve current models of artificial intelligence, 
uh, towards a broader aspects of cognition, especially if the goal is uh, to mimic human-like um, abilities. Um, so we propose something. We propose that a model of the human cortical development could be used to instruct novel computational learning approaches and to discover innate structural networks that support an agent, could be human or artificial, that learns to explore its environment efficiently and adaptively. But unfortunately, there are major experimental barriers. And the, the major experimental barrier is that this innate learning actually happens in uterus, it's pre-birth. Uh, and we don't have tools uh, to actually access the um, developing human brain uh, inside the womb. So we have to rely on uh, less efficient or, 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 or tools with lower resolutions, such as the ultrasound, but that doesn't allow us to see exactly how the human brain will shape the first networks to actually build that innate learning that has been shaped by evolution throughout um, the years. So that's why we turn into brain organoids. Brain organoids are stem cell derived uh, neuro tissue structures that mimics the early stages of neurodevelopment. And it was uh, pioneered by Yoshiki Sasai in Japan. I mean, this is uh, probably the first publication reporting that if you grow these cells and neuralize them in three dimensions, they will self-assemble and form these um, anatomical structures that resemble the human fetal brain. But of course, a brain organoid is not a brain. There are many limitations. Even though you hear the term mini brains, I mean, what we have is not a miniaturized version of the brain, um, but the technology has intrinsic limitations. We all hear about uh, the problem of vascularization. So these organoids are not vascularized. Uh, we don't have all the cell types represented. Um, it's a very reductionist model of the human brain. But it's still, uh, one of the major problems that we have in the past was the absence of um, electrical activity or a coordinated evolution or development of electrical activity that will uh, end on something similar to a neural oscillations that allow us to correlate with human behavior. By the way, this kind of electrical activity that you can actually measure through the skull, it is something that cognitive neurosciences has been connecting with human states, human behaviors um, for, uh, different, for, for several years now. Um, the good news is that uh, in 2019, uh, we were able to uh, create for the first time a protocol that generated these oscillatory networks uh, inside the brain organoids. And I, 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 this was like something that was missing in this field. Um, and also, I mean, attract lots of attention, of course, um, uh, we are evolving that. And what you are seeing here is the embodiment of these uh, um, uh, human-made uh, network connections created inside the organoids. So this is a robot that is actually uh, walking using the electrical signal of one of these organoids inside the incubator. Um, so the organoid doesn't know that it's moving a robot, uh, but soon we will be able to uh, finish a feedback loop that we can use for the robot to now start to stimulate um, the organoids itself. So the physical robot, with, with the physical robot, we can independently control the degrees of freedom uh, presented in the uh, subject sensory motor, um, as well as the physical environment that's embedded in, in order to study whether and how behaviorally relevant adaptations can occur and alter the organoid circuitry. So that's the major goal. We anticipate that this uh, robotic system will adapt, will evolve, 
and create their own solutions based on the context that encounters. We anticipate that the inputs from the robot will also further mature uh, the networks and the oscillation pattern um, to uh, disorganize, making it closer to the human brain. Uh, this kind of a research um, uh, makes people really excited because of the potential of that. But are, there are also, I mean, um, uh, potential ethical considerations that has been discussed by this field. Um, and it's a challenge to control the ethical implications as well as um, the perception of the public with this technology. One example is um, this uh, art. If you now go to the uh, 6th Ave Avenue in New York, you're going to find uh, this kind of a piece uh, of art in a gallery. Um, and I hope you can see here that in the center is a brain organoid. This is one of our images, actually. And the brain organoid is closed uh, to the chimp. I mean, showing that we can learn our evolutionary oranges using this kind of tool. We can learn about ourselves. So what we're going to be discussing here is that if it's possible to generate the next generation of supercomputers by growing organoids in the lab and why this is important. Uh, because we're going to solve energy problems, we're going to solve data storage problems, we're going to solve continuous learning, which is going to hear uh, more about that, and we hope to improve machine learning and artificial intelligence. Just for you to put in perspective, one of the largest computers in the world took about 40 minutes uh, to model one second of less than 1% of the human brain. So we are so far apart from uh, the machines. I mean, now the way our brain computes is so different that if we learn a little bit about that, we might be able to revolutionary the way um, we store, we compute, and things like that. So that's, the, the, uh, that's why uh, Dr. Silva and I, I mean, we team up with SENI. Uh, this is uh, the Center for Engineer Natural Intelligence. And um, we team up with the Microsoft a team as well to kind of uh, answer some of those questions. Um, the kind of uh, frame questions that we're going to be discussing is about uh, how artificial intelligence or how computational uh, power can help biological discoveries, which I think we have good examples already, but perhaps more importantly, how biology can inspire and even become part of artificial intelligence. So we have lined up um, uh, uh, three speakers. Uh, the first is uh, Dr. Silva. Uh, he's my colleague here at UCSCD. Um, he's a professor in both uh, bioengineer and, and, and neuroscience. And he's going to uh, talk about organoids and the right amount of complexity to make sense of the brain. So Gabe has been uh, theoretical neurosciences for the past years, and he's, had, he's been working with our group to kind of solve those issues. And then we invited two people from Microsoft, Sujit and Weiwei, we have been working with the Microsoft group uh, to incorporate some of these um, issues or, or, or trying to solve the organoid complexity and in, um, in incorporate into uh, computational um, uh, power. So uh, the title for uh, Sujit is going to be bridging the gap between biological and artificial intelligence with the information bottleneck. In a way, we'll talk about an alternative approach to collectively solving intelligence from brains to beats and bots. Um, so um, it's my pleasure to welcome them, and I think we can move on to the first speaker. We could move to one of our uh, Microsoft um, people. Sujit, do you want to go first? I have used a slightly different title, but it's the same theme. I did listen to the latter part of Allison's talk, and 
Uh, one thing that resonated with me is Feynman's quote. So although I'm not a Nobel laureate, uh, as a machine learning researcher, it's sometimes hard for me to decouple um, principles from implementation, right? And so the first question I always ask is, how do I translate any of these empirical observations or principles um, into an algorithm? And how can I um, code it up? And is it efficient? Um, math has always been the language of choice for bridging this gap, right, in various disciplines in physics, um, chemistry, and, and neural processes are no different. Uh, but there are many different frameworks we can draw from. And in the recent past, I've gravitated towards information theory as a very useful framework. Um, for conceptualizing ideas and also translating them to um, efficient algorithms and, and code at the end of the day. Um, so though I don't work on super exciting things like organoids, I come from more of a machine learning research perspective. And Allison did touch on sort of the state of the art in machine learning and why we're beginning to look towards biology for inspiration. My, my long-term objectives are to formalize connections between mechanisms that we observe in biological systems and AI algorithms using precise information theoretic principles. Um, of course, that's a tall order. So uh, my objective for this talk is specifically is to motivate people smarter than me, so this audience, to start thinking uh, in this direction to begin with, right? And now Microsoft is a for-profit organization. So we'd like all of this to eventually have some economic footprint, right? And in my opinion, um, efficient learning is one of the most pressing challenges in AI. And also an aspect where a biological system, that is the human brain, is orders of magnitude more efficient. And we can characterize and compare learning systems across many dimensions, right? I've summarized five key dimensions that, um, that, that we kind of consider as guiding lights for what we think of as being efficient. First one is computational efficiency, right? Which refers specifically to compute requirements, including memory, size of the model, number of operations um, that a model entails. And of course, uh, one summary metric could just be the total energy that's consumed or power, right? Um, and of course, this has to do almost exclusively with the model definition and the model parameters. And generally speaking, smaller models lead to more, um, if, more computationally efficient models. Sample efficiency, on the other hand, refers to the number of samples that we require to achieve a certain level of representation capacity, right? So uh, let's say we're trying to build a simple classifier that can distinguish between cats and dogs. Learning to do that with just 10 examples is a lot more powerful than learning to do that with 100,000 examples, right? So not only does this result, result, result in significant data savings and um, efficient mechanisms, but note that computational efficiency and sample efficiency are not orthogonal principles, right? So um, the total number of operations reduces if the total number of um, examples we operate on also reduces. And um, next is generalizability. And as the name suggests, it indicates how well the systems extend to previously unseen scenarios. Um, adaptability is also a related concept um, that characterizes how the system can adapt to new tasks. And we, these get more and more advanced uh, principles that we want to achieve, right? So um, I'm using reasoning as an umbrella term that captures any higher level cognition, symbolic reasoning and, and other advanced properties. So the, the definition, at least my definition gets increasingly imprecise as we go from 
computational efficiency, the sample efficiency to generalization, um, adaptability and reasoning, right? And, and also, I think the bottom line with respect to efficiency um, is also more precise when we just talk about computational efficiency. Right? So let's start with that. Why do we want to do this? Like, why is efficiency such an important problem? Just earlier this week, Microsoft announced the Megatron Turing Natural Language Generation Model, which is the largest and most powerful language model to date. Um, with over 530 billion parameters, it was trained on about 4,500 top-of-the-line GPUs. Um, I did some back-of-the-envelope calculations and simply purchasing these GPUs at MSRP would cost $100 million, right? And if that's not concerning enough, uh, notice the trend here where there's an exponential growth um, in the model sizes, right? So um, up until last year, there's no model that exceeded 10 billion parameters. And just in this year or the last year, there have been at least a few trillion parameter models reported, right? There's the Microsoft Megatron Turing NLG, which was just announced last week. There are these mixture of expert models such as switch transformers that operate at a trillion parameter that, that operate on the order of trillion parameters. And so, and so we don't know what's coming next, right? There, uh, we hypothesize that the models will continue to grow because we've learned to, uh, we've learned to learn, no pun intended here, to, to train these models on increasing amounts of data. So as the model parameters increase, model capacity grows, we can continue to um, train on, we, we can crawl pretty much everything that's ever been published and, and train gigantic learning machines. And all of these models rely on what we call the transformer architecture. And there've been several attempts to find efficient alternatives, right? Um, you can think of the transformer as learning associations between words or sentences or tokens. Um, it, it can, it, and think of it as a fully connected graph, right? So all of these um, other alternatives that include random projections, convolutional alternatives and sparsity um, attempt to minimize the, um, the quadratic complexity of both memory and compute of, of the transformer um, module. None of these are close to achieving the level of efficiency we see in biological systems. Now, um, I'm not a biologist, but I've often seen the word uh, 20 watts or 40 watts reported for the power consumption of our brains. Um, well, Megatron Turing with the 4,500 GPUs requires 1.3 million watts of power. And it, it, it still can't achieve uh, a fraction of what the human brain can, right? And th that goes back to, of course, um, hardware implications, and, and of course, there's, there's interesting discussions about organo organoids and so on. But my interest lies in the, at the algorithmic level, right? So there must be some sort of a gap even at the algorithmic level that we can we can bridge. And there are several mechanisms we can attribute to um, for brain's efficiency, right? And this this is by no means an exhaustive list. It doesn't include the complex mechanisms, like I said, fundamental dif differences in the hardware or software. So all of these are specifically algorithmic directions that I'm talking about. So um, low precision refers to the fact that um, current computing systems are designed for high precision tasks, right? So if you were to multiply three six-digit numbers 
um, a, a computer can do it in um, a fraction of a second. Uh, it will take uh, a person, I don't know, hour, an hour, half an hour to write, write down the, the multiplication and follow through with it, right? But on the other hand, we're extremely good at inference tasks and so on. Um, sparsity is, um, let me just briefly define it as uh, a setting where a, a large number of parameters are zero. Um, so this is useful because um, it, it tends to be compressible. So think, think of compression as compressing an image using JPEG or something, or, or a zip file even, right? So when you have a picture um, of, of, let's say you have two pictures, one picture with just um, blue sky in the background and another picture with a lot of texture, you can encode all of those pixels as just blue, right? And that leads to better compressibility and that has to do with uh, the notion of sparsity. So uh, in addition to that, most uh, modern computing um, architectures can circumvent zeros, right? So um, deep learning relies on multiplication and addition and most, and, uh, most computers can skip that, uh, that operation if they see a zero. So rather than multiplying um, four times zero, you actually just skip that compute. And so that leads to also some efficiency in computation. There are of course other principles such as local updates and associative learning that we know um, humans are capable of, but um, are, are currently limitations in uh, machine learning systems. So given that, I just want to go back to the goal that I initially stated, which is to formalize some of these mechanisms in the context of information theory. And so why information theory? Because biological systems and artificial intelligence models, um, deep learning specifically in, in, in my case, but even other machine learning systems, um, can be seen as dynamic stochastic processes. Um, which makes them amenable to information theoretic metrics such as um, entropy and mutual information at various levels of granularity, right? That is, we can reason uh, these notions at an intuitive level where entropies uh, define some notion of uncertainty and even precise mathematical and algorithmic levels. I also believe that information theory might already be that common language with prior applications in neural processes as well as deep learning. Um, and of course, at the end of the day, the goal is to develop new machine learning systems that are efficient. So um, having that underlying math makes it easy for someone like me to uh, look, at, look at these equations and translate them to efficient code. And here's one example uh, of a prior application to neural coding. I'm not a neuroscientist and it's by no means an exhaustive literature review, but it goes to show the utility um, of uh, information theory in analyzing neural systems, right? So this chalk, chalk and all show in their PNAS paper that um, efficient coding occurs when um, the information between the response at time t and the stimulus at time t plus delta is maximized and the information between the response at time t and all prior history is minimized. So in other words, neural encodings are suggested to be efficient if we ensure that the current response is aligned with future stimuli. And surprisingly, a very similar property has emerged in the deep learning 
um, literature as well, known as the information bottleneck principle. Just uh, to correct that, information bottleneck did not emerge uh, from the deep learning literature. It was it emerged from sort of the statistics community, but it's been recently applied to um, deep learning as well. Um, the goal of efficient learning can be defined as maximum compression of the input data or stimulus um, here, that's denoted by X here such that we maximize the association with the output Y, which can be labels of a supervised classification task. So in, in these equations, um, X denotes the input data, T denotes some aggregate notion of the hidden representations. It could be each of these hidden layers of the network or a concatenation of all of these, depending on the application we have in mind. And um, Y represents the label. So let me present another illustration thanks to um, Tishbe and all. Um, here, suppose we have an image, right? And this is an image of a dog and we'd like to train a classifier for labeling a new unseen image as, as a dog. Um, the network is defined by layers of artificial neurons, each of which learns higher and higher levels of representation. Now the network effectively compresses all the pixels, right? So if you think of this input image as uh, in its pixelated form, it's a very high dimensional representation, right? Let's say the, the input image is 256 by 256. That's a lot of pixels that represent just, just the image of a dog. And the idea is that not all of those pixels are relevant, right? So the network, as we progress through the training, effectively compresses all the pixels of the image by discarding details that are irrelevant for the prediction task and retains only the information that is relevant for that particular task. And this is in the context of a supervised classification problem. And this curve on the left here quantifies um, the process very well, where here A, B, C, D, and E refer to different stages of the training. So A is the very beginning of, uh, of, um, of the training curve, and E is at the very end. And each of these are different, each color represents a different layer. Let's just look at the last layer of the model here. So initially, the last layer has almost no information about the input um, X, right? And it progressively learns more in information about both the input and the label. So the, uh, as we go up, up in the Y-axis, we're learning more and more information about that particular label, in this case, the dog. Um, and we keep going until we've learned um, a little bit about both the input and the output. And we then, uh, and this is a natural evolution of the training uh, algorithm itself, right? So this is a, a standard convolutional model trained with um, stochastic gradient descent. Once we hit this inflection point, or it's also referred to as the phase transition, um, we start discarding information. So these are again, things that may, maybe don't matter. For example, the background in blue maybe is completely irrelevant. Um, for, for predicting that it's a dog. And these uh, curves are called information planes and we can immediately start characterizing um, some of the mechanisms we discussed earlier, right? So um, all three curves correspond to the exact same model here, trained on the exact same data for the exact same task, which is in this case, MNIST digit recognition. Um, the first graph corresponds to training on just 5% of the data, however. Um, the second graph corresponds to training on 45% of the data. And the third graph, which we call sort of near complete data set, trains on 80% of the data. You can see that in all three cases, 
the uh, information between X and T. So just to recap, X is the input, T is some notion of hidden representation, Y is some notion of the label, right? So in this case, X would be images, T would be some learned representation, and Y would be the label um, of the digits themselves. You can see that in all three cases, um, the images are almost equally compressed, right? So I of X, T is one in all of these cases. So it's one here when we train on the full data set, it's one here when we train on about half the data. And it's also one here when we train on just 5% of the data. But the I of TY, that is our, uh, the information that the hidden representation captures about the label is drastically different. And uh, it's intuitively obvious that with just 5% of the data, we don't learn as much as we do with about 50% of the data, 45% of the data versus the full data set, right? But what this gap also suggests is one way to characterize sample efficiency, right? So um, this, for a particular application, perhaps this, this gap isn't as significant and maybe just training with half the data suffices. And since the characterize, and, and the more important part here is that this characterization depends entirely on information theoretic measures, right? So these are numerical estimates of what we think is happening, uh, both in terms of learning the representations and in terms of compression. So we can construct a similar graph for biological system as well, either using a model for neural processes or directly from empirical measurements. So I really believe that further research in this direction can inform rigorous comparisons between biological systems, um, biologically inspired machine learning models, and of course, state-of-the-art deep learning. So I suspect the workflow would look as follows, right? So let's take some desired property um, of a biological system, such as local learning, um, identify its impact on the information bottleneck. That is, how does local learning bend that information plane we just explored? And explore a number of different algorithmic approaches that can induce the same characteristics. Um, and these these algorithms do not have to be necessarily bio-inspired, right? We're likely going to succeed if they're bio-inspired, but there are lots, and that's the gap that I'd like to address, is there are lots of biologically inspired um, techniques or approaches that are not necessarily directly implementable in the, in the context of state-of-the-art deep learning models. So as the proxy, let's take computationally feasible aspects that we can implement that achieves the same mechanism and, and the way we characterize and quantify that mechanism is with the information bottleneck. And, and then of course we can repeat this process indefinitely until, until we achieve our long-term goal, goals uh, or get, get close to achieving our long-term goals. With that, um, I'll defer to Wei Wei. Um, I, would, I would have loved to share some early results, but some of this is unpublished work. Thank you, Sujith, for that talk, and uh, thank you, Allison, for having me. I'm uh, very excited here this afternoon to actually address uh, one of my favorite questions that's coming up, and I get asked this a lot. So what is the difference between machine learning and artificial intelligence? I'm actually not going to answer this question directly today, but hopefully after my talk, every one of you will start to form some opinion about it. So we live in the golden age of machine learning, and it's very exciting to see how we continue making news, breaking boundaries. Vision being the first domain that I would argue we conquered it. Now machine learning has achieved supernatural abilities to 
track, identify, and uh, um, you know, essentially just uh, follow any object that comes uh, within our view of vision. And the next domain that we start conquering is in language. Now computer machine translations are capable of translating text across several hundreds language. We have machines capable of generating new content and also just generating live captions as I speak. My personal favorite, of course, is Alphafold 2, which was announced last year. And not only did it essentially solve this grand challenge in biology of predicting protein folding, it actually ushered in an exciting new age of machine learning aided drug and material discovery, which you can imagine will just accelerate all sorts of progress. So it's almost magical what we can achieve in machine learning. But uh, I hate to say this, uh, unfortunately, the magic here is very, very expensive specialized hardware and data. Lots, lots, lots of data, as my colleague Sujit already pointed at. In fact, right now we're in this trend of what we call the so-called large data, large model trend. As um, transformer models first gets popular in the early 2018s, you can see this trend show here in this graph. And the last example being recently this week announced the Megatron Turing model by Microsoft. By Microsoft, this model have 520 trillion, uh, 500 billion parameters. Just let that sink in for a little bit. And also, I want to draw your attention to this red line. Don't let it deceive you. It looks straight and linear. If you pay attention to the web access, you realize that uh, it's exponential growth. Uh, if you think about uh, the kind of resources as Suji's already um, hinted, uh, goes in training one of these uh, models, uh, it's not achievable by just any entity. And uh, if we continue this trend, we literally are going to run out of resources on Earth training these large models. And uh, you know what? Uh, as we invest so heavily in all these uh, machine learning models, uh, not always well, it's not very hard to actually find examples where machine learning just uh, fall flat short. Uh, so in this example that came out by Schuller and all in 2012, uh, they proposed a set of synthetic visual reasoning tests. Uh, the test is uh, very simple and you can essentially break it into two categories uh, um, of uh, essentially procedurally generated uh, images. Um, you can think about uh, the problems that come in two tabs. One is the sameness difference. So on the first image on the left side, you can see that the two shapes are actually the same shape. It's just translated. So this is the sameness class. The, uh, the one below it, it will be a difference class. The two shapes are actually different uh, invariant of transformation. Uh, the ones the next two on the first row is uh, what we call uh, relation, spatial relationship. Uh, the smaller image is inside the large shape. And then the one next to it, it's also a spatial relationship. Uh, line in a uh, in the straight line 
As it turned out, uh, the machine learning models that can perform perfectly identify spatial relationships uh, performs rather poorly at some problems, even at chance, identifying sameness and a difference type of problems. So let this sink in for a little bit. So sameness and difference, this is a really basic intrinsic concept. It's not new. It's not like a concept that only human can grasp. In fact, even honeybee can. So in this behavioral study done by Weber and O in 2013, they actually tested the honeybee on this thing called delayed matching on seminus. They use a Y-shaped maze that has three gates. The honeybee would enter the maze through the stem of the Y on one gate and have to choose to exit the maze on the arm of the Y. Specifically, these gates are either coded by color or shapes. And in this case, they first trained the honeybees to follow, to enter the maze with, say, yellow color gate, and then choose to leave the maze with another yellow color gate that would lead to food. So thus, matching on sameness. After they successfully trained the honeybees to do that, they switched the gate to actually striations or patterns. The same honeybee can be trained with very few examples. Again, grasp on the sameness idea of following, for example, two, uh, two horizontal striped gates to lead to fruit. So honeybee can do this. Machine learning, not so great. Well, what can we do? Since the inception of machine learning, we always take uh, inspiration from biology and the perceptron is uh, after all modeled based on biological neurons. So to that extent, uh, our group actually collaborated with uh, Gabe's group in trying to understand uh, how dynamics and uh, layout or, or geometry really influences a network's ability to learn and the capacity to learn. So to this extent, uh, we implemented some realistic uh, dynamics, for example, inhibition and excitatory neurons, uh, activation threshold, weight decay, refractory period, uh, internal propagation delays, and the spike timing dependent uh, plasticity. Uh, as far as the network architecture goes, uh, we have an array of uh, ranging from random like error screens, so stochastic block model to regular click grid lattice to some biological inspired layouts like uh, connectums of C elegance and morphological lattice. Our results are both um, promising and puzzling. Promising in the, I'm going to show you the first video is what I categorize as promising. In this video, we, uh, we use a random initialized network and the stimulus we use are MNIST digits, which are 28 by 28 black and white digitized handwritten like digits. Um, we sent the stimulus through this network and then we Take the activation path embedded using a method called pass to vec, and then we um, PCA down to three dimensions just for visualization. Here you can see that uh, you can see that the activation path actually corresponds with the stimulus classes very nicely. In fact, that uh, when we visualize it, you can see this uh, dark brown, um, like a dark brown patch on the top that uh, corresponds to class one, and then this, uh, for example, purple patch here corresponds uh, to class two, I believe. Uh, 
However, what we mostly run into is actually this second uh, scenario where we just randomly stimulate 20% of the nodes. And then you will see the both blue and orange edges. The blue are excitatory, orange are inhibitory. As you can see, as the simulation just goes through a couple iterations, soon it gets to the state that uh, the network is saturated, it's very chaotic, and we don't actually know how to analyze this. It's almost akin to giving someone seizure. And uh, as we explore more and more of these uh, um, neurodynamic inspired model, what we realize is that uh, the search parameter space is really large and it's not linear, which means that uh, we can't just hand tune one parameter and expect everything to work. Uh, we really need somehow a way to guide us uh, to find uh, how to tune and even initialize these things. And that's uh, where Ellison and his wonderful for organoid uh, came into place. Uh, I don't have to tell anyone in this uh, panel about how wonderful these organoids are, not only because uh, after a certain level of development, they start to manifest these population-wide uh, uh, synchronous behavior. But this is really the first time we have a brain miniature brain model that we can we can observe how it grows, we can study, we can actually start measuring its internal activities. So to this extent, actually um, Francesca in Ellison's lab started pioneering this technique about constructing an effective network based on activities measured at the different sensor locations in multi-electric array and using this correlation and the delays to build a graph. And what we end up doing is constructing a time series of a graph based on these activities. So what you see here on the right side, uh, some examples of these uh, graph, they actually represent a snapshot of a growth in this organoid development period. What is really awesome about these graph sets, uh, it's actually a domain that uh, us computer scientists understand and uh, can study. And also what's also fascinating about these graph sets, it uh, might not necessarily represent the physical connectum, but in the effectiveness, it's a way for us to study understanding representations or embeddings of how they manifest. And just a word about uh, embeddings or representations. Uh, here I actually showed six different representations of the same underlying graph structure. In this case is a Bing user search graph specifically in electronic devices. And uh, we actually even color coded the type of the device that the Bing user searching. The data is the same and as you can see that uh, the representation is completely different. And with these different type of representation, they actually have a different purpose. In the uh, case of a Bing user um, a search graph, we use uh, combining multiple of these representation actually using a method called linear integer programming to help us better understand what the user search for and uh, respond with search queries. But not just useful actually in uh, Bing or web search. In the bottom example, we actually have a um, connectome that's constructed uh, 
by our collaborators in Cambridge of Professor Drosophila Lave. This is a very detailed connectome that it's not just mapping out how the cells or neurons are connected, but it goes to subcellular. It maps out parts of the neurons that's connecting. So you can see connections of exon to dendrite or dendrite to dendrite likewise. With that sub-neuronal level connections, we're able to construct four different representations or four different graphs. And when we started um, trying to figure out uh, how or which representations are better. That's when we could tie to what we need to do. And in the case of we're trying to find all the mushroom body input, uh, um, input of motor neurons, uh, we actually find that by combining all these representations, that's what gives us the best results. So I talked about uh, where machine learning fell short uh, and how we take inspiration from uh, biology and uh, organoids, for example, are really helpful for us to understand uh, compute and the uh, development changes and its uh, effect on abilities to learn. And uh, now I'm going to circle back to this thing that I originally started with, uh, machine learning and artificial intelligence. Um, so I don't think I'm qualified uh, to define intelligence, artificial or otherwise. Uh, but uh, what uh, my colleague like Sujisa and uh, among others uh, and I have come up with is uh, a list of desirable traits, uh, what we would like our AI to be able to do. And as Sujisa already talked about, foremost, we'd like it to be efficient. Biological organism has to function in very limited, resource-limited situation, so should our AI. And then it also has to have the ability to generalize. If I learn to identify cats inside my house, I better be able to identify cats outside my house, otherwise that skill is very limited. And uh, if I understand about the sameness difference uh, by being able to visually tell two subjects apart, uh, I should be able to understand the same concept of sameness difference when it comes to auditory, tactile, or olfactory. Then, you know, like a uh, some higher cognitive abilities, reasonings, uh, something that uh, I never encountered, I should be able to say that I don't know, which is also very basic. Then relationships of things that's larger or smaller, or even causal, if I drop a pen, it will fall. Last but not least, if we want our AI to help improve our life and uh, help us make, guide us make decisions, we better understand why it's making those type of suggestions. And that's why it has to be explainable. So how do we achieve all that? And I uh, hope by now I have convinced everyone that it's not about uh, building the most expensive cluster, gathering the largest data set and train the biggest model. What I believe is that we have to do this side by side with biology by actually designing a set of experiments that can be run all the way from organoids uh, to fly to uh, zebrafish and human. And, uh, this uh, set of tests have to be invariant uh, to language and uh, also knowledge bias. Uh, 
the purpose for this set of tests is to quantify how biological capabilities align the five axes that I talked about. But more importantly, it's actually for us to observe this learning process, but also programmatically using a measurement to quantify learning and the progress as Suji's already alluded to, for example, using information bottleneck. Only when we can understand how learning occurs and quantify these things, we can really start taking inspirations from natural intelligence, from biological algorithms to improve our AI. So this is what we propose as a collective alternate approach to solving the intelligence problem. And uh, with that, Alison, I will turn to you. Fantastic, Wei Wei. Thank you so much. Um, all right, I think we have uh, Gabe on board. Uh, Gabe, whenever you're ready, your turn. I'm going to compliment and, and in a way, give sort of a biological perspective from uh, what I suspect Sujith and, and Wei Wei were sort of discussing. Um, and how we sort of came to this and then this, this fantastic collaboration we have with Weiwei and her group, uh, group and Sujis and others at, at Microsoft as well, sort of exploring this and looking at organoids as a model for really sort of studying the complexity of the brain. So I, I thought I'd start with a neurobiological but engineering perspective on the complexity of the human brain. You know, we, we tend to it's really actually hard to grasp uh, when you think about the brain as a system. And that's very much how we think about it. Um, but first of all, I think what, what eludes a lot of people is an intuitive sense of just the, the incredible multi-scale nature of the brain, um, structurally, temporally. Uh, this is illustrating, you know, sort of that the hierarchical structural uh, complexity you know, the image on the left here is um, the, the tensor fusion imaging uh, fMRI of uh, the white matter tracks in the brain. You're looking at it sort of in cross section. This has been pseudo colored um, using DTI. And then if you go down three orders of magnitude, you end up sort of at this scale. Now we're looking at individual neurons. And, and the mess, of course, up here is, is the neuropill. It's all the connections the cell bodies tend to cluster together. I mean, the, the, this is what the types of networks that we're ultimately trying to understand how they're representing processing information, trying to extract the algorithms um, and then sort of being able to apply it to, to other engineering that, that retains the algorithms, but, but abstracts away, separates it from the wetware, the, the squishy wet stuff that the brain is actually made up of. The, the scale difference just between here and here is, 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 is huge. And, and the example I like to give is, uh, is, is an example in time, not in space. So if you, you wouldn't consider walking from New York City to San Diego would just take too long, but a single order of magnitude change is the equivalent of going from walking to driving. Uh, now it becomes feasible. You can get across in, in you know, four or five days. A two order of magnitude change goes from walking to flying you can get across in hours and you know three orders of magnitude you know which is roughly sort of the, the the spatial difference here would be the equivalent of like that technology doesn't exist right it'd get you from one end of the country to the other in a matter of minutes right so huge huge difference and then if you go even further you get down to 
to this scale. Here you're looking at uh, electron tomography, so you're looking at optical sections coming through. Uh, you can sort of see the, the total reconstruction. This is all the stuff that fills just the space between a single synapse. Okay, so phenomenal, phenomenal spatial and, and hierarchical complexity in the brain. Um, it's, it's very much a living dynamic organ. You know, again, I think there's sort of this misconception that the brain is just floating there and, and, you know, inside the skull and in cerebral spinal fluid and CSF, but, but it's, it's very much an active and dynamic organ that's, that's constantly changing. And that's one of the challenges. And when you're trying to understand the brain really sort of as an engineered system, you need the right tools and the right models to be able to do that. Um, if we look at the complexity of the human brain, sort of the numbers, there's about 85 billion neurons in, in a typical adult human brain. Uh, importantly, there's about another 86 billion non-neuronal cells. And, and the most important ones to me are astrocytes, at least from a computational perspective. Um, I suspect in this audience, everybody knows what astrocytes are. Of course, they're one of the three main subtypes of, of glial cells. Um, and although the classical role of astrocytes was in homeostasis and maintaining an environment that keeps neurons healthy, um, in the last 20 years or so, we know that astrocytes actually uh, are able to, they contain all the molecular machinery capable of both participating and modulating neuronal signaling. So they can both listen in to synaptic signaling and, and they can actually secrete neurotransmitters, uh, which we call gliotransmitters in that context. And so a process from an astrocyte will wrap around a synapse in a structure called the tripartite synapse or three-part synapse. And astrocytes form a network onto themselves. They form a large syncytium, uh, and, and that plays a role in homeostasis. They shuttle away waste products, and they bring glucose to areas of, of high neuronal activity. But they also participate in, in information processing in the brain in ways that we frankly do not understand computationally. So it's a, just amazing to think about that we have this other huge network. About 20% of these 86 billion cells are astrocytes. If you go back to neurons, each neuron has, you know, sort of in a typical artificial neural network, we think of kind of, you know, the, tip, the way it's often drawn, it's, you know, five or six or 10 sort of incoming connections into a node. You know, typically a neuron has 10 to the 4, 10 to the 5, tens of thousands to hundreds of thousands of synapses coming in. That's the degree of integration that's happening in just one neuron. Um, and the consequence of all of this integration is the output is just one of those tens of thousands and hundreds of thousands downstream signals that's contributing to the firing of, of a, then the next postsynaptic set of neurons in the chain. The total number of synapses in a typical human adult brain is about 10 to the 16 uh, order of magnitude. Now, the number I like to compare that to, there's about 10 to the 21 stars in the observable universe. That's a few more orders of magnitude, and I just emphasized what, how significant that is, but it's still a humongous number. This is the network that we are faced with sort of attempting to understand from a theoretical and computational and engineering perspective. Now, typically we take that incredible degree of complexity and we'll, you know, historically we, it's been reduced down to something like this, you know, dissociated cultures of hippocampal neurons in a dish, sparse. I mean, I think it's a beautiful movie because you can, this is calcium imaging. You can see that calcium, sort of that information almost you can picture it kind of flowing from one end of, of the 
image to the other. Clearly, this network was stimulated up here in the um, upper right-hand corner. But but it's very artificial. It's very false, right? Compared to to what the real brain is, and that's and that's the point. And so we need better models. We have tools that can probe the intact brain, but of course those have limitations because it's only so much you can do. And 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 where I'm where I'm zeroing in on is precisely sort of this middle role that organoids, brain organoids, might be able to play as a model. So what makes the brain unique? Again, from a systems perspective. Um, I like to contrast what the brain can do with sort of what machine learning can do. These two, this is one of my favorite examples. These two images of a cow are completely different. They're physically completely different objects. The, the one on the left is a line drawing of a cow, um, black and white. The one on the, on the right is, is a colored photograph, completely different angle. But, but you just show like a toddler just a few of these examples, and they very, very quickly start to create the concept, the class of what a cow is internally. So one of the things that brains does spectacularly well, which still eludes machines, is, is, is inference. Inference in the face of sparse, noisy, and always incomplete data, right? There's some, some fun sort of interesting examples of, of just how limited machine learning is compared to, to the human brain still. This is an example of a news story. So what happened was there, there was a, a nationwide sort of news story that was on Alexa, uh, Amazon's you know home assistant device. And in the newscast, they, they said, Alexa, can you order this dollhouse? Just as an example in the story. And of course, what happened was that was coming out of the televisions of thousands of people across the country, got picked up by the Alexa in people's homes. And all of a sudden, everybody started receiving dolls, dollhouses they never ordered. Um, and it really kind of drives home just the, 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 the very sort of limited and, and you know, uh, prescribed nature of the technology still. Same thing happened to Google uh, during the Super Bowl as well. This is a really good example. Language, and in particular, the nuances of human language, you know, just machines just do not get it, right? So this sentence, hey, thanks for defining the word many for me. It means a lot, right? So this is kind of comical because it's a play on words. When we, when we read it means a lot, it has two meanings to us, right? It's the literal definition of many, but but it's it's sort of a sarcastic comment. And this is the kind of stuff that just com still completely sort of confuses um, machines. So if you think about the breakdown of, of sort of the classes of what makes the brain unique, these are the really key areas where the brain really excels, you know, again, from, from a computational and, and engineering uh, uh, perspective. And what we're trying to do is, is understand the underlying mathematics and algorithms for these different classes, both for, for, so we can understand the biological brain and importantly, understand where the biological brain deviates algorithmically, right? Because we're interested in disease from a systems engineering sort of definition and perspective, uh, but then also for things like next generation machine learning. So we spent a lot of time sort of, this is ongoing work, really thinking about complexity and emergence in the brain. Um, we have a particular interest in the role that geometry plays uh, in networks. Biological neural networks are geometric networks, meaning they there is a, a defined physical geometry to them, but there's also a defined 
finite signaling speed or conduction velocity. And what that does, the interplay between the geometry and conduction velocities sets up latencies in these networks. And those latencies is a constraint on top of the connectivity of the network that plays a huge role in how the network can represent and process information. And we've been formalizing these ideas mathematically. I'm gonna show you one quick example of the effect that geometry can have on a network. This is what you're seeing here in the inset is a, a geometric network. Every node is a modeled as an Itzikiewicz neuron, which is a simplified model of a Hodgkin-Huxley neuron. And it's a geometric network because the distances between the nodes and the edges here matter. Okay. And, and so you, we can do simulations that look like this, where we're, we're, we're simulating sort of the propagation of information on these networks. On the right here, what you're seeing are two raster plots that correspond to, to data that, from this network. Uh, obviously time on the x-axis and, and then from zero to hundred, because there are hundred nodes in this network, although they're not, they're not enumerated along the y-axis. And every time you see a little dash mark as you move along the time axis, it means that neuron fired, right? This is the exact same network, completely different dynamical behavior. The only thing, the only variable that we changed between these two networks was the signaling speed, the conduction velocity. And so what's happening is it's, it's actually intuitive to explain in words. You have this geometric network. In the bottom panel, the conduction velocity is too fast. And so we drove the network external for the first 500 milliseconds. And then we stopped the external stimulus and asked the question, how is this network able to sustain inherent recurrent activity? In that bottom panel, the conduction velocity is too fast. And so all the signals reach their downstream nodes that they're connected to. They fire once. And then all the signals that come in after that are coming in while the network is still refractory because these are neurons, so they have a refractory period. In the upper panel, and so there's no activity after that because those neurons never see that signal. In the panel above it, when the, when the conduction velocity, which represents a global network property, matches the internal processing timing of the individual nodes that make up the network, in this case, the refractory period and the time it takes for that neuron to process that incoming signal. When there's a balance between those two elements, then you get this very nice sort of sustained activity um, that you see there in the upper panel. And so that led to a, a whole um, theoretical framework that we've been developing where we um, it, it's a mathematical model of spatial and temporal summation where geometry and latencies matter. And if you do that, it turns out several things. First of all, we were able to theoretically derive what we call a refraction ratio, which is a, the, the mathematical representation of this balance between the dynamics at a local scale in the network and the dynamics at a global scale. Okay, I'm gonna show by an, an example of a result from that. And and, and so we were able to take this theory, do neuroscience, and then at the same time, start to explore machine learning. And it's nothing more than the mathematical formalization of some of the principles I just was just discussing from the previous slide. So really quickly, here's an example of a neurobiological application of that theoretical work. It turns out, I'm going to spare you the details, but I'll give you the punchline. It turns out that 
biological neurons. We looked at high resolution reconstructions of individual neurons. And in this case, we were looking at a population of basket cells, uh, which are inhibitory interneurons. And it turns out that we calculated the refraction ratio along the axonal arborizations of a, uh, like, I forget the exact numbers, like 56 different reconstructions, a total of uh, close to 15,000 individual branches. Um, and we calculated the refraction ratio because the theory predicts that an optimal refraction ratio, this balance between global dynamics and local dynamics should approach unity. Uh, that reflects sort of a good balance between the two. And it turns out that, that at least in this reconstructed data set, uh, basket cells seem to optimize their morphology. They optimize their shape to preserve this refraction ratio, which was a, you know, sort of a really cool result. One of the things we've been talking about with Allison for, for years now, actually, is can we use these theoretical concepts like the refraction ratio to think about neurodevelopmental, neurodevelopmental disorders like autism from a systems engineering perspective? In other words, what we're after is, can we show in organoids and individual neurons from organoids derived from autistic patients, a shift or a deviation in this refraction ratio. Because a shift in that refraction ratio, we know from the math, indicates sub-efficient network signaling, right? And so this is, this is a major direction that, that we've, we've been trying to pursue for a number of years. Um, and and our, uh, all of this is sort of coming together. The second example I'll show you is we, we used, again, I'm going to jump through the details just in the interest of time here, but we looked at the connectome of C. elegans because, of course, it's still the only organism for which the entire connectome is known. And importantly, the geometry of the C. elegans connectome, although rarely used, is also known. Um, the, and, and so we, we, we created a, a, a simulation environment of the C. elegans connectome and we're able to show that when you stimulate a particular feeding circuit in the C. elegans connectome, and you look at motor neuron output populations, there's a very natural back and forth firing between, between uh, contralateral motor neuron populations that biologically causes the worm to do this, to, to, to move towards that food source. And that's what you're seeing here. You can see the periodicity. This is the same theoretical model now in simulations that I've been talking about. We didn't program this behavior. The neat thing about this result is that it's inherent in the connectivity of the C. elegans connectome. So that's kind of, you know, that's kind of interesting. All right. So I've already been talking about organoids sort of as this model, right? Dissociated models are too simplistic. The whole brain is just too hard to do some of this, you know, work at this sort of network scale. And so organoids are this really, really interesting sort of model in between. Um, and, and with Allison and some of his colleagues, how far that technology has come from a stem cell perspective and what they're able to do, I think is, is prime for being able to, to bring the theory together with the experimental. This is, uh, I, I don't know, Allison, if you gave a talk yet, but this is his paper and the work that he did with um, with Brad Wojtek showing you know, sort of a complex electrophysiology, you know, showing that organoids, if you give them enough time, you know, 
the electrophysiology starts to approach a firing rate of higher order organisms. Okay, first time it was ever shown, and this made a huge splash um, when it was published just, uh, what, over a year ago or so. Um, now, there are challenges. Oh, and, and this, by the way, this is the organoid. I'm going to skip this because Weiwei was just talking about that. This is the organoid toolbox that we've been developing uh, between colleagues at Hopkins, here at UCSD, and then Microsoft to develop the methods to allow us to extract the network information so that when we can then apply analysis tools like the refraction ratio. All right, so the last thing I wanna show is just to leave you with some thoughts about sort of the challenges and questions, right? One of the big problems with organoids still that we have from a technical perspective is the connectome. It's a large structure, you know, roughly 2 million neurons, 2 million cells in this three-dimensional sphere, um, that's a big structure. The truth is we really do not have yet a really good way of mapping a connectome of that size at the, at the cellular scale. And so you're left with having to measure activity on the surface of the organoid using multi-electrode arrays, for example, um, or trying to do sort of single cell electrophysiology, right? Um, so mapping the connectome is a huge issue. Doing high density geometry and, connect and connectome mappings that, that sort of mappings that preserve the geometry and connectome are, are, are even harder. So it's not just the connectivity, it's preserving that geometry. And then this is where the brain initiative comes in because we really need to take advantage of, of brain initiative like neurotechnologies that can do high density electrophysiology inside sort of the intact organoid structure, right? Sensory integration, here's an important question. Is a brain really a brain when it's a thing in isolation, isolated from its environment with no sensory input, right? You know, do organoids need to be stimulated? Um, Allison and others are working on, on ways to do that, right? But, but, but from my perspective as a computational neuroscientist, this is an important consideration. Hybrid computing. Again, not sure if Weiwei mentioned this, but the idea of organoids as an interface, sort of a, a, a computing system that blends wetware and hardware, right? That's an interesting sort of engineering objective. And if we solve all of these problems, then I think we're, we're, it, it's just going to be spectacular because the mathematical tools and algorithms that we have that we can apply to, to this model of the brain um, uh, is, is it's just going to be a fantastic period in neuroscience, I think. So uh, I will stop there. And Allison, back to you. First, I mean, I just would like to thank you all. I mean, for these uh, great presentations. I think, the, as I mentioned in the beginning, Gabe, you missed that, but I, I introduced this as the first time Telestem Cell Conference is actually talking about uh, those issues. This is like brand new for us as well. The fact that one can use a human-made uh, structure to learn something and apply to the mathematics, I think it's fascinating. And uh, so I, I thank you all for, for the interest on that. And I hope the organoid um, would prove to be a good model system. Um, you mentioned uh, the, I mean, if we have the right complexity, Gabe, um, and, and Weiwei also mentioned uh, the ability of bees to actually solve some problems that um, currently machine learning or AI cannot. Uh, and the organoid is about the size of a bee. 
I mean, we, yeah, we have like 2.5 million neurons in there, plus the glia cells and, and everything else. Um, and we do have excitatory and inhibitory neurons. Um, and the beauty of this model system to me is that different from a bee or a mouse brain that comes fixed to you is the ability to personalize. You can add the sensor information that you want. You can add pain sensors. You can add uh, retina for a visual uh, sensor information. So you can add stuff. You can, you can vascularize it. You can grow them bigger. You can add more neurons. You can take it out more neurons. You can increase the complexity. So it is a very flex, flexible model system. I think we, um, we have to, to agree on what, what's the minimum that allow us to kind of move forward with these, uh, uh, those questions. I think we have something. Uh, uh, that works because, I mean, we showed that the electrophysiological actually follows uh, the human uh, neurodevelopment. So I think this is a good, um, a good start. Um, but definitely the model uh, can improve. There is room for improvement. And uh, that's important for uh, uh, the young generation who is actually listening to that. I mean, if you are a stem cell biologist and want to do something in the interception between mathematics and, and brain organoids, this is a great opportunity to jump in. Um, so I want to, uh, let's see, I mean, there are, I'll, I'll go into the Q&A first. Um, there's a question from Thomas Chung here. What's the AI equivalent of a human reflex versus deliberative action? And how does AI account for so much of human biology being driven by nonlinear process, for example, amplification? I believe this question is probably to uh, Sujit. Thank you, Alison. That's a great question um, from Thomas. Um, in terms of re reflex versus deliberative action, I don't know if I have uh, a good answer for that. Maybe Weiwei and, and Gabe can provide better insight. But in terms of nonlinear processes, I think a lot of effort. Um, so one, uh, one key distinction is um, when you look at state-of-the-art deep learning models and that's kind of my proxy for AI. As Weiwei mentioned, there are other notions of AI and machine learning, but I'll, I'll stick to deep learning for now. And, and my, my understanding is that um, the dynamism isn't captured because uh, deep learning models, the network structure is static, the learning algorithms are static. We don't dynamically, like you just mentioned, Allison, we don't dynamically add neurons or subtract them. There, there is quite a bit of active research in that domain. But coming to nonlinearity, that's predominantly captured with um, nonlinearities in the activation function. So um, if you look at these, these common nonlinear functions, uh, such as ReLU or the sigmoid, uh, hyperbolic tangent functions, they, they surprisingly achieve quite a bit of nonlinearity non despite uh, these seemingly linear layers, right? So even, even if the next layer is just a projection of the previous layer, which you can think of as a matrix multiplication, just adding this ReLU nonlinearity, which effectively says, discard everything that's uh, negative, right? So set everything that's negative to zero and keep, and, and keep only the positive um, values, um, achieves quite a bit of nonlinearity and complex representations. Um, I don't know, Weiwei and, and Gabe, if you have anything uh, more to add to that. 
no, Sujis, I think uh, what you said on non-linearity is uh, pretty on spot. And uh, I actually don't know what uh, is machine learning's uh, equivalent of uh, uh, some of these things that's being asked. Um, so, but, you know, maybe like uh, I would uh, hypothesis that uh, something that uh, along the lines of random projections, uh, maybe it's like akin to impulse because it's something that uh, is uh, doesn't need to require feedback in some sense. It's just like a directional thing. All right. Um, I have a question here for Gabe. Um, can you estimate the refraction ratio, ratios from quantifying the calcium level fluctuations within the networks and single cells in organoids as opposed to electrophysiologically, both at the surface and within the interior of the organoid? I, I, I mean, that's a great question. We talk about that all the time. That's how originally I started thinking about this and actually even prior to organoids, you know, um, I was actually trained as an experimentalist and had a wet lab for most of my time at UCSD, uh, uh, in addition to doing theory and computation and have done a lot of calcium imaging in, in, in throughout my career. My hope early on was that calcium imaging could be used as a surrogate for electrophysiology and honestly, the methods were never quite there. I, I think they're getting there now, um, uh, but but there were, you know, the indicators are just too slow. The the uh, the the numerical sort of the, the actual math behind converting from calcium signal to sort of predicting spikes. There's been many papers published on that. I just never really found sort of a system of being able to use calcium to do that. Um, so, so to answer the question directly, in in principle, yes, the, the math is agnostic to to the method of you know how you're measuring it. Um, there's no assumption about the underlying neuronal model. All we need to know is when does an event occur, right? There's there's no assumption of it's a model free you know framework. So yes, we could use calcium, the limitations in, in, on the experimental side, but, but Allison, maybe you want to comment because we've, we've talked about in particular doing calcium imaging when it comes to organoids yeah. many, many times. Yeah. So the, um, the calcium imaging organoids will definitely suffer from the three dimensional structure of the organoid, right? I mean, we're going to be imaging the surface of neurons. Maybe you can get like some cells uh, underneath, but, but there is a couple of layers. Uh, and, and, and that, that might be confused. Um, um, I mean, it would be a, a very easy to do that uh, if we are in a monolayer, I think. Um, so that's why we prefer the electrophysiology. And I think the gold, gold standard here would be the patch clump, stimulating and recording at the same time, uh, or the high density arrays where you can follow the trajectory of the signal throughout the neuronal body. Um, I think we are kind of uh, batting on, on those two to, uh, to get those uh, measurements. Um, but, you know, I mean, I mean, this is a field that's evolving fast. Um, maybe we're going to learn both at the macroscopy level, how to uh, imaging uh, an organoid in a better way, as well as the sensors will get uh, faster, more precise, uh, and correlate better with the activity. I think we're going to see that. I do, just don't think we are, we are there yet. I would like to kind of end and give you guys a little bit of time to, to think and, 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 uh, and I would like to hear your reflections uh, on the following question. Let's suppose that we are there, right? So we were able to decode the connectome of the organoids, I mean, and solve all the 
uh, problems that um, Gabe has uh, listed as um, pitfalls that we have. So we are there. Now we have this amazing algorithm that actually works very similar to the human brain. So what? I, I would like to hear, I mean, from the Microsoft perspective, what we're going to do with that? What, what are your plans with that? And, and what are potential ethical implications uh, for this kind of network? Sure. I mean, that's a challenging question because it, it, it brings together kind of science, uh, policy and economics, right? So I guess starting from science that you're, you're suggesting that we've solved the scientific problems for the most part. Um, and so, uh, I mean, you could use this, these scientific advancements for, for more advancements, right? So um, I don't think uh, uh, even if we've hit sort of this true AGI, uh, we, we're not, it's not necessarily the end all be all because we, we can start training more. And there are already techniques where um, you, you can use deep learning at AI for in, in the creative spaces, right? Which we consider to be sort of the top of the food chain when it comes to cognition and, and, um, and intelligence. And, and so th those are certain applications from in my view, where you can use these scientific advancements for more science. Now, the economic perspective uh, is, is, is interesting, right? Because obviously you can now start automating anything and everything um, we choose to. And um, again, depending on, uh, I mean, and, and not only in terms of the, the notion of just opening up entire new business divisions and, and revenue streams and so on, but also in terms of, again, when you talk about economics, there's also the cost aspect, right? So um, if, if they're efficient mechanisms as well, then there's there's that advantage. And, and thinking about sort of the, the policy perspective, and that's the real challenge, right, is um, what does it mean for, um, for, for sort of the existing uh, applications and, and where uh, humans are involved, but also I think um, in, in terms of just, I mean, humans can be biased, right? We'd like to tell ourselves that we're not biased. Uh, we'd like to think that we're, we're unbiased, but we are very much biased. And um, deep learning models are also, even current deep learning models, right? Forget solving the entire uh, problem of uh, problems that, that Gabe posed. Um, we're, we're inherently biased and, and machine learning systems are only as good as the data they learn from as well, right? So I don't think that's gonna change no matter how advanced uh, the, uh, or how, how complex the learning system is. Um, and so these are still, I think, interesting questions and I think issues that we have to get across, right? And same thing with consistency. Uh, in my view, uh, machines are perhaps more consistent than humans are, right? Uh, in terms of repeat tasks and, and so on. And so uh, when, you, when you start thinking about kind of responsible AI from, from uh the notion of um, bias and consistency. Uh, I don't know if, if these advanced systems, I know for sure that bias will continue to be a problem no matter how advanced the, the solution is. Um, and, and I think consistency and these other topics are also something to think about. Yes, not, not always uh, the human cognition would be applied uh, to the best, right? Sometimes you don't right. want that to interfere. Exactly. Uh, wait, wait. If you have that tool in your hands, what are you going to do? Well, I think uh, 
I'm going to take a very human-centric view on this, and I think uh, it's all about improving our lives. If we have that, uh, if you think about uh, the abilities uh, to essentially cure any disease or being able to model and uh, have personalized medicines to treat it, uh, um, think about what it means uh, for mental health uh, to just uh, improve our environment, uh, also reduce uh, our workload, uh, having something else there that is serves uh, in our place for a lot of these uh, remunerative tasks that uh, we can free ourselves for maybe better, more creative way of uh, thinking, um, improving the planet, and then maybe eventually getting away from the planet and exploring what's out of there. I know now it sounds very, very sci-fi, but uh, this is what we are driving towards. And uh, as soon as we understand uh, what the computer possibilities and what we are unlocking, I think uh, really our imaginations, it's our only limit. And then maybe even there, we can argument our imaginations. Right, right. Very good. Uh, Gabe, you have the tools that you wanted. You were able to decode. You have this beautiful algorithm. What are you going to do with that? Yeah, I, I mean, from, from a neurobiological perspective, I'll, I'll speak to that. I mean, the... The a lot of the stuff that you and I have talked about over the years, right? Personalized neuroscience, thinking about the um, uh, the do you make audience at all the boxes over there where those agreements are. Allison, did you mention to to, to the uh, the NASA boxes at all? No, I didn't talk about that. Yeah. Okay. I mean, so the idea of having these boxes, Allison and, and another colleague of ours are putting organoids in these boxes and shooting them to the International Space Station and seeing how, you know, these little models of the brain, just just observing the microgravity, right? Um, with applications to space and space travel, especially as... You know, the plan is to put the first woman on the moon and the next man on the moon through the Artemis program, uh, NASA's Artemis program within, a, a, it's supposed to be next year, in a year or two, and then uh, build a permanent station on the moon as a launching pad for missions to Mars, uh, you know, over the next couple of decades. The problem is those are long periods, right? Like, how's the brain reacting, you know, to, to those prolonged periods of microgravity? Um, so applications to space exploration and, and, and again, sort of thinking about disease states of the brain from a systems perspective, you know, uh, autism, neurodevelopmental disorders, neurodegenerative disorders, you know, can we define them not by just by observable or measurable changes in physiology, but by, um, uh, by analyzed changes in the in, in the functional consequences of what that physiology is doing, right? Or pathophysiology. And, and then being able to do it on a, on a personalized basis. So you take that NASA box and each person has their own one. And that box does all kinds of assays, right? And, you know, there's a server rack of them in your lab, Allison. And then we, we build a, a, uh, a mission control, which is something we're going to do in the new Franklin Antonio Hall collaboratory, you know, where we can monitor all that. I mean, that's, that, that would, you know, it'd be spectacular. So I think, I think those are some of the, 
it, it almost sounds science fiction, but the truth is that those pieces are coming together. You know, I, I think we're going to start making significant progress on that um, uh, in, in, in the relatively near term. And uh, in talking about science fiction, I mean, we always hear about this kind of AI evolving to a certain level where we can no longer control. Uh, there is another aspect that I, I don't hear that often is uh, the connection between AI and humans. One of the things that make us humans is uh, the possibility to connect with something. And let's suppose that we connect uh, with AI because it reaches a level of uh, human consciousness that we feel that we can talk to, we feel that we can express our feelings um, to AI. And, um, and none of you mentioned any, any way or form of controlling that. Uh, do you think that this should be controlled or, 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 or not? I mean, it should evolve as part of us. I think um, my reaction is that uh, maybe we should think about the AI the same way that uh, we think about uh, our children. It's not about uh, controlling them. It's about uh, bringing them up uh, in the most ethical, best environment. Uh, and uh, hopefully that uh, they will achieve uh, something better than us. <laughs> I like that way, way. But uh, I, I used to say that for social networks that uh, the social network is as good as uh, the users, right? And the users will kind of shape how the social networks behave. Uh, unfortunately, we don't have like a good history of shaping social networks um, to something good. I mean, it's still good, uh, but there's lots of bad things in there as well. Um, but I hear what you're saying and I, and I agree. I mean, I think it's all about the kind of education and information that we're gonna use on these networks. Well, I think technology is not inherently good or evil. And uh, so, you know, like we do have a great history of raising the next generation in that sense. I think we're there. And uh, also, you know, like uh, it's really depends on how we use it. The responsibility is on us. If we mess it up, that's on us. And uh, there's just no other way I can wrap around it. All right, so that's, uh, I think it's a wrap. Um, thank you so much, Gabe, Weiwei, Sujit. These were very insightful. Uh, we'll continue to work together. Hopefully in a year or so, we're gonna have um, uh, more data to, to share here in this meeting. Thank you so much.